Hi, this is Jeff Kober, and we welcome you to this Disney Insights podcast. Well, 35 years ago, this week, my wife and I came to Walt Disney World for the very first time. It was 1988, and I had a big bucket dream of visiting since opening in 1971. We were finally established in life with our first child and a new one on the way. So we set course for Florida. Disney's Hollywood Studios was still a year away, but Epcot was something totally unlike anything I had seen in my years at Disneyland. And the Magic Kingdom was supposed to be something far bigger than the original happiest place on earth. The experience was profound as it made us set sights on the idea of moving to Florida. So join us for what is perhaps the oldest trip report ever, 35 years in the making. Make sure you also subscribe to DisneyInsights.com as well as this podcast so that you're able to uh, obtain notice when we have a new podcast come out. You're also going to, if you get a chance, go to your podcast subscriber and if you could put in a positive rating or review for the uh, happiest little podcast that ever could. It really helps us to get the word out about the mini podcasts that we do here on this on this uh, podcast. Now, um, to really set the stage as to our experience, I mean, I would wanted to do this since, since I was a child, 1971, but with uh, airline airlines not uh, deregulated and so forth, the cost of going from Arizona out to um, Florida was just prohibitive during those early years of my life, even if I mowed a lot of lawns as a teenager to save up the money. However, when I got married and finishing up college and everything, we settled down in Tucson, Arizona. And uh, that kind of gave us a chance to consider the possibilities of going to um, Walt Disney World. And there were a couple inspirations that that really set the stage for that. Um, one of them is that for Christmas, I think it was the previous year, I had received the um, the official album of uh, Epcot Center. And that intrigued me. The music, at initially, I didn't know what to make of it because it wasn't, it wasn't familiar songs like, you know, Yo-Ho or It's a Small World. You know, it had things like Golden Dream and Energy and Magic Journeys and It's Fun to Be Free. Those songs weren't familiar, but it was intriguing to consider what were all these attractions like, which brought me to the second thing. I had found, it was in those early years when Birnbaum first came out with official guides to Disneyland and to Walt Disney World. I think I bought the Disney one first. And I bought the Walt Disney World one, and I was so surprised by how much content there was in in this book. And you started going through these attractions at Epcot. I mean, Magic Kingdom, you know, it's a small world, Pirates of the Caribbean, Space Mountain. You kind of get the idea of what those attractions are essentially like. But all these universe of energy or world of motion or journey into imagination... These were all brand new kinds of concepts and ideas that I hadn't grown up with at Disneyland. So that truly, I mean, I, I poured over those pages in that Birnbaum book. I remember spending a lot of time doing that. And I think I'd gotten that like a year earlier or maybe right at the, at the first of 1988 because my, my uh, official guide is from that year, 1988. That's the first one I had ever gotten from Birnbaum. Um, there was also, um, well, that summer uh, of 1988, there was a Walt Disney World special that came out um, in and um, on July 4th, and this was it was called the Walt Disney World Fourth of July Spectacular. Now, I think it was in 80. Well, actually, this year they're celebrating. I think what is um, the 40th year of um, the Walt Disney World 
um, very Merry Christmas parade that would be on Christmas Day morning. Back then it was actually on Christmas Day morning. Now they, they tape it in advance, but that has been going on for 40 years. Well, in 88, they decided to do a couple of them that were based on the 4th of July. And this really intrigued me. I have a link in Disney Insights on this. It opened up to a number of things that were going on at Walt Disney World. First of all, it was Mickey's um, birthday. And so, and so there was a big celebration around that. This was his 60th birthday. I'd been out in Disneyland during his 50th birthday. But this was um, not only a celebration for his birthday, but it was actually um, uh, his... They actually had built... Um, Mickey's Birthday Land in a corner of fan between Fantasyland and Tomorrowland. And this new Birthday Land, which was um, quite extemporaneously put up, for lack of a better term, was, was a big uh, part of what was happening that year in 1988. It was to get guests to come out because it would still be another summer before Disney's Hollywood Stu or Disney MGM Studios would open up at uh, Walt Disney World, so to get guests to come out, they had decided to build this this little land. It had uh, Mickey's home. It had this big birthday celebration. I'll talk about it in a few minutes. But that was one of the things that that they talked about on this special. Another thing they talked well, there were a number of things in this special. They talked about this new Norway pavilion, or what was referred to as Norway Gateway to Scandinavia. That was a big thing that they talked about. But the thing that really intrigued me was Disney's Grand Floridian Resort. Not the resort especially. I don't even remember that they really toured the resort. But what they did have was the Beach Boys playing on the beach there in front of uh, the Grand Floridian. Uh, along with John Stamos, who does guitar in one number and then drums, uh, bongos kind of in the second number. But they played Kokomo, which had come out during that time. It was a Tom Cruise movie that had come out um, through Touchstone. And uh, that Kokomo song really resonated. I resonated, but not resonated, resonated with me. And the whole, the whole scene just spoke to me like, Oh, this is a cool place to go to, Walt Disney World. So, so the 4th of July Spectacular was a big incentive. I do remember we got serious at that point about actually figuring out how we might do this uh, very trip. Then I managed to get some uh, a copy of the Walt Disney World Resort Vacation Guide. I must have um, may asked or sent a, a mail or something called an operator maybe. But what really is important about this guide, even though it covered many of the things that we're talking about and all the things that could be found at Walt Disney World, the thing that really was, I think, one of the most pivotal aspects of this trip was it had a page um, which acknowledged the new Disney's Caribbean Beach Resort that was coming in the fall of 1988. This was a brand new, the first of the, of the moderately priced resorts with colorful tropical styles of the Caribbean islands such as Trinidad, Barbados, Aruba, Barnique, and Jamaica. Again, this kind of Kokomo kind of sense all in this, this one setting. Well, as we looked at the prices, I think what it was is a Grand Floridian was going at about 180 a night, which sounds like a steal now, but um, it was about 75 per night at a Caribbean Beach Resort. And for newlyweds and going the first time, this that seemed to make sense for us. And so we booked that resort. And I think this is one of the most pivotal aspects of our trip because when we arrived, we mind you, we're traveling. What we did is is we went up to Utah for Thanksgiving. We left our um, oldest daughter, our first daughter, our first child, only child, with um, her grandparents. And then we flew out from there out to um, Florida and then back to pick her up. Uh, my wife was expecting our second child, Cameron. And um, and we just saw this was a, a perfect time to go out and do this and have... Um, the grandparents watch our daughter. So so we flew out there 
And this is the first time I had really been out east. And although I, now that I think about it, I had gone to a conference in Atlanta. But other than that, um, I really hadn't, and my wife had never been um, back east. You say out west and you say back east. So we had never been back east. And so, and much less uh, really Florida other than my having gone through Miami International on one occasion. So here we are arriving in Florida and the first place we go to when we arrive at Walt Disney World is, of course, our hotel, which was the Caribbean Beach Resort. Back then they had a separate area which was not a really good design. It was kind of a design flaw of the resort, but you checked into a, a main building up front, and then from there you went out to your hotel room, and there was buses kind of going around the whole uh, property. With a, and, and that was kind of a, a design flaw, but the thing that caught my eye was the architecture and especially the landscaping. And I just remember thinking, okay, yeah, this is supposed to kind of replicate the Caribbean, but in truth, Florida is kind of part of the Caribbean, the landscaping here. This is what Florida looks like. So being out at the pool, being out on the beach, all these elements of being here at, at Disney's Caribbean Beach Resort really kind of gave me a taste for what it'd be like to live in Florida, in particular, Orlando. Not that we had any idea about how we would do that or what that would look like, but it gave us a taste and that's really important to the end of the story. So here we are, we're at, um, and by the way, it's so amazing. Some things I found, I found stationery and even the original survey um, and the vacation information guide that was from our hotel there. You know, they, there's always been this tradition in the past of doing postcards in the hotel room um, they had a postcard for Caribbean Beach, but because it was so new a resort, even the advertisements in the vacation guide kind of staged the the resort because it was brand new. We It had opened, I think, about four to six weeks before we arrived. So we were like literally one of the first to stay on this property. And it was the first to be a moderately priced property. And... Um, so in the postcard, isn't a picture of the Caribbean beach, but rather a painting of the Caribbean beach. I have my original um, ticket from that experience, which um, which shows it was a, um, a five-day world passport, and it was stamped. The first day was November 28th of 1988, and then, of course, the next day was 29th, 30th, and then... December 1st and 2nd. Those were the first. Now, the first day we went, we didn't get there until late afternoon. And so our first use of the ticket was really that evening. And as we left on the bus, motor coach, from the Caribbean beach over to Epcot, you could for the first time see Spaceship Earth. Now, it isn't Spaceship Earth with the special lights that have been added on for the 50th, but still with the lights on, with the sun setting, it was a pretty, Spaceship Earth has always been a spectacular kind of, of place and um, kind of building. And so our first night was spent at Epcot. I think our first attraction was World of Motion. It seemed to me that we wandered in, Spaceship Earth had a long queue, so we kind of wandered around. World of Motion could take, I don't think I've ever spent a long time in line at World of Motion. Um, but I just remember our first evening, our last evening was at Epcot. We spent more time at Epcot than we did at Magic Kingdom. But let me step through some of the unique things that occurred in the Magic Kingdom. Of course, you, again, my, my whole sensibility is built around Disneyland. That's what I had grown up with. And so you step into the Magic Kingdom. First of all, you take a monorail or you took the um, the boat across and that Staten Island type fer type ferries and of course that in and of itself is is so unique and very different um, and then you step into Main Street and it's just I mean the, the the expression is it looks like everything was was done on steroids but the but the gingerbread the lattice work 
the architecture on Main Street is absolutely stunning, especially even in contrast to Disneyland's wonderful and charming Main Street. This is this really just fills um, a space and just envelops you. And then, of course, you're looking down as as you all do. You remember the first time you see Cinderella Castle and it just soars. Now, I had grown up with looking at GAF Viewmasters of the Magic Kingdom. I had uh, almost all of them for Magic Kingdom, and I spent hours staring at these things, hours looking at pictures of this. And um, and now I was actually seeing it in real life. Um, it was an interesting thing because it was actually decorated. By, by the way, it was kind of cold that week, which is kind of coincidental because actually it's been cold the last couple of days here in central Florida, but it was cold during our visit. Uh, a little sunny in the afternoon, but cold most of the time. And um, they had decorated for Christmas. And there is something unique about the decorations at Walt Disney World because they utilize citrus products, oranges and lemons into the design of the floral that covers Main Street. And it's just a very charm. And back then, it, you know, it hung across Main Street you know, it was kind of um, uh, changed out differently because of the size of the dragon and the and recent parade floats. But this, the whole sense just felt very Floridian while you're still in this Main Street kind of experience. Um, what was kind of really weird, there was a Mickey's All-American Birthday Parade. I have to tell you, I just don't remember um, what um, that was all about. I just remember that the Castle Forecourt stage did not have a Christmas show. It had, um, it had a, um, uh, what was called America the Musical, which was also sponsored in uh, the 4th of July special, which makes all the sense of the world. There was a more, um, uh, larger version shown in that uh, video. Again, the link you could see on Disney Insights. But what was kind of weird is that um, uh, to see it at Christmas time, we're celebrating the 4th of July. I think it was tied, I want to say it was all tied to the Constitution. And honestly, uh, what I remember about the parade is it, having been at the 50th parade it didn't seem it it didn't seem so mickey focused to me it looked it looked kind of like their their american heritage parade or what was their constitution parade i think there was a, a surfing flow from california it just looked like it had been tweaked from from a more bicentennial, let's go across America kind of parade. That's what I remember of that. I also remember um, that, um, well, let's just go through a couple lands and talk about them. First off, Adventureland was, um, I think the intriguing thing about Adventureland was Pirates of the Caribbean because this was my favorite attraction at Disneyland. And it has a very cool entry in the Caribbean Bazaar. And I was very impressed by all the different kinds of shops in the Caribbean Bazaar. But you get on Pirates of the Caribbean at the Magic Kingdom and you're missing a third or more of the attraction. And it's so disappointing. And that's one of the first things that I remember very much was how this was just lacking. Um, step into Frontierland and Liberty Square. Now, and mind you, back then they still had the Old World Antique Shop, the Silversmith and the Heritage House. That was kind of cool to see those different kinds of little shops. They had the Hall of Presidents, which I had only done Mr. Lincoln. So that was kind of interesting. In fact, I had, I had grown up with the Hall of Presidents record. And other than adding a few more presidents, it was still pretty much the same Hall of Presidents. I think we were still in Reagan at that time. They had the Diamond Horseshoe Jamboree. Probably the coolest thing was that they had um, 
Big Thunder Mountain. Not that we hadn't been on the one at Disneyland, but this one seems so much bigger. And I remember Kathy wondering, should I be riding this when I'm pregnant with Cameron? We were kind of, um, uh, how do we say, um, perhaps a little more naive back then. I also remember, and I don't know if I took the keel boats or the canoes, because I think they were still doing keel boats and canoes back then. Um, or if I had taken the river boat, but I remember going on the backside of Rivers of America. And again, you're kind of brought to really what is Florida, native Florida, even though they're kind of pitching it as, as a kind of a Mississippi experience. And, you know, you got the log cabin and all those things. But, but in truth, what you're really seeing back there is really, again, that sense of Florida and what it's like to be here in that part of the... Uh, part of the country. In Fantasyland, um, Small World, again, was kind of disappointing. Haunted Mansion was just similarly the same, except for the exterior. So no big deal there. I didn't feel like Mr. Toad's or Snow White's Adventures um, or Peter Pan's Flight was as good as the Disneyland version because they had gone through the renovation of the new Fantasyland. And that was so well done at Disneyland that the... the uh, the tent troubadour um, f fantasy fair look of Fantasyland, which still exists in some parts of it today, it just seemed lacking compared to the new Fantasyland at Disneyland. I think what intrigued me most, well, first, I, I should also mention that one of the great disappointments was uh, Magic Journey's had replaced Mickey Mouse Review. And I was really hoping to get to Walt Disney World before that came in. But when Tokyo Disney was built, they moved the Mickey Mouse Review, physically moved it, didn't make a duplicate, physically moved it to Tokyo. And so I missed it. And then later when I get to Tokyo, I missed it again. So I never did get to actually see the Mickey Mouse Review in person other than on YouTube. But um, I did have a chance to see 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And I have to say, the lagoon was amazing. The ride was so similar to the submarine voyage at Disneyland that I really, other than the change of Captain Nemo's voice being your narrate, narrative as you went through it, it really seemed very much uh, the same as before. Of course, now we have this um, Mickey's uh, birthday land. And I remember Mickey's house. I remember Mickey, uh, Minnie Moo Moo, the cow that had kind of a Mickey-like patch on the side of it. Uh, he was kind of in a barn. There was a little maze, not a, not very, and a little playground for the kids. Didn't really appeal to us. There was a train station. The biggest thing was the three tents set you up for a, um, a Mickey show. The first tent was kind of a pre-show with some Mickey clips in it. And then the second was a kind of Mickey's kitchen where Chip and Dale and others, Goofy, are all coming in to help kind of create a birthday cake for Mickey. And then they go into the third tent where they actually sing happy birthday to Mickey in a big, it kind of moved the crowd through um, because there were a lot of shows. Let me see if I can see how many shows there were. Uh, during that time, but um, there was a lot going on in um, in that Mickey Toontown in terms of the number of shows that were playing. I'm trying to look for it, and I don't see the number of shows listed there. By the way, they also, Oliver and Company was coming that Christmas, and so there was a pre-show. That what I remember more than anything is the pre-parade pre float of Oliver and Company and several of the characters in it. That's that's really what I recall the most um, of that experience. By the way, I apologize. My son may be making a few noises in the background. So, um, But then the final thing that really intrigued me was Tomorrowland. And Space Mountain was interesting because its rockets were like the bobsleds at Disneyland where you kind of were straddling each other and laying back in the seats. And of course, there were two tracks, not one track. So I'd grown up on the Disneyland, not grown up, but I had spent several years 
uh, t- 10 years or so riding the Disneyland version of Space Mountain where, you, where you're side by side. Here it was a very different um, Space Mountain. The, the People Mover was impressive. Even though the People Mover was good at Disneyland, it was so much better at Tomorrowland. The thing that I thought was, and of course you could see the Carousel of Progress, which had been moved out. I had I had seen it back in the 60s, in the late 60s at Disneyland, only once, maybe twice. Now I could actually see it at Walt Disney World. That was really cool. Um, but you also had a chance to see if you could fly, which was where uh, Buzz Lightyear's is now. It's the same track layout as it was with Buzz Lightyear and the same actually kind of car only you didn't have the the front portion with the with the with the blasters but it took you through these little scenes of the Caribbean old Mexico New Orleans a lot of projection use if you remember the um the divers in Mexico you had that the film footage kind of diving off the cliffs that was the same kind of sensibility and it um and it had been changed to it was originally if you had wings but now it was being referred to as if you could fly um but it was basically the same thing before it went to i think dream flight is the next iteration of that attraction which happened in the 90s but but that was the magic kingdom it wasn't it was big, but it wasn't overly impressive. And the thing that really caught our attention on this trip, more than anything else, absolutely had to have been Epcot. It was it was really so different than anything we had ever been on before. Spaceship Earth was impressive. And the fact that this thing had a ride vehicle that went up inside the top of it, I think we take that for granted. But the other aspect of Spaceship Earth that a lot of people forget is when you exited the attraction, you didn't go into those kind of that games area or or interactive um, activities that you see currently. You actually walked into what was known as Earth Station. And this was their guest relations. It was actually opened up. It wasn't an enclosed space. That wouldn't happen until years later. And right there, you could take care of any guest relations need, especially making dining reservations, which you could also do in Mex- uh, in Germany off of a, off of a um, television interface. Well, you could do them also at Earth Station where you interacted with somebody on a, on a screen um, and made dining reservations, which... Here's one of the, well, here's one of the quick things we realized is how important formal dining was to Epcot, which we didn't realize until we actually got there. There was back then Communicore, similar in name to the Communicore that's currently being um, rebuilt and um, what will be um, World Celebration. But it had, it had a, the electronic forum where you could take an Epcot poll. It had a show called Backstage Magic. Um, it had the Energy Exchange. It had um, a teacher center, which was interesting because my wife was a teacher. Um, and it had Centorium. I don't know if you remember, but Centorium was actually two levels. It seemed to me it had both a glass elevator and um, a... Um, oh, uh, uh, escalator that went up toward the top. Maybe it was just a staircase, but any rate, back then the original gift shop was two floors instead of one. And um, and then they had the Sunshine Terrace restaurant, which probably was the same food. Um, well, you also had, you had two restaurants back then. One was the Stargate restaurant, and then one was the Sunshine Terrace restaurant. So you kind of had like a day and night kind of thought to this. Um, it seemed like the Sunrise Terrace restaurant was the one that um, that uh, was open for breakfast. 
Um, no, actually, it was the Stargate. I apologize. It had omelets for breakfast and then pizza and salads in the evening. The other had uh, seafood, chicken, and salads at it. Um, it was... Um, it, 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 that was not as impressive as this big array of attractions. The universe of energy had seen dinosaurs at Disneyland. This took it to a whole new level, especially as you went on these massive ride vehicles. The disappointing thing was the movie portions of it were just horrible. It was before Ellen's energy uh, experience, and it the shows were just boring. Actually, the first show was actually um, the kind of the birth of the Earth using some of the Fantasia footage in a big screen kind of um, but the last was a tribute to Exxon and it was just it was just horrible. Her um, the world of motion stood out because while it wasn't a very amazing uh, ride vehicle, it was simply an Omnimover, but it took you past scores of animatronic uh, characters, animals, humans, and so forth, all depicting in a humorous way the, uh, the man's effort around transportation. Uh, this was an attraction designed by Ward Kimball, and I don't think that Ward actually designed another attraction for any park other than this one. Ward Kimball was known for the Three Caballeros and for the Mad Hatter and and for some very zany-like types of experiences. And it played out. Um, next door was the Odyssey Restaurant, which had, was the location for hamburgers and hot dogs. It actually had a Disney character show. By, by this point in 88, they decided to bring in um, Mickey and the gang basically just Mickey and the gang. They had these silver costumes on with kind of rainbow rainbows on their chest and they're kind of otherworldly or future worldly, I guess. Um, but I remember seeing this show play out at the Odyssey. Journey to Imagination definitely was one of the highlights and we went and saw that several times. Now Magic Eye Theater was playing Captain EO. That was kind of... Well, and we'd, we'd already seen that several times over at Disneyland, so we didn't have an interest in that. The image works upstairs. That was kind of interesting, but Journey to Imagination really captured. There was so much a part of that, and it was really one of the first songs uh, you could really kind of gravitate toward. The, the Sherman brothers had written One Little Spark. A lot of people don't remember, but the, the, the finale of Journey into Imagination was your picture being taken digitally and then redisplayed. Now, I say digitally because it wasn't you didn't you couldn't order a print copy afterwards, but you had the you 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 posed in front of um Dreamfinder who had this camera and then uh, and then you turn the corner and see your picture up on the screen and that's for Millions of people at that time, that was the first time they ever had a digital photo taken of them because everything before that was uh, camera film. And so that probably was the thing that stood out, but it's also some of the things that kind of dated the attraction over the course of the next 10 years. The land, I got to tell you, the land was, I, I wasn't sure that I had come to appreciate Listen to the Land. Um, the initial scenes were kind of interesting, but they seemed a little shallow, and which was a problem with World of Motion. They weren't like Pirates or Haunted Mansion where you felt truly immersed in the setting. You, you could see the kind of the ceilings of these attractions, and it, it wasn't as immersive, but they were still well detailed. Um, uh, more, more curious was Kitchen Cabaret with Bon Appetit, with the gang singing uh, Veggie Fruit Fruit, uh, another really kind of um, crazy song that, that kind of caught you. Um, also, I found really interesting was the Farmer's Market. This is before the seasons. They had all these individual booths that you would line up for, and it was kind of a pain because 
you had to pay at each one of them. If you wanted something from more than one, you'd have to line up twice. And that was a problem. But I liked the setting. Back then, the there was a big fountain, sculpted fountain in the center. And I really liked the setting better um, back then during that time. Long before Finding Nemo, there was The Living Seas. And The Living Seas had this film at the beginning that was just about as boring as anything. You could sleep through that film. And then you got into, and then you got into a hydro later, which seemed silly as I'll get out. Of course, there's legends. Uh, it's legendary that somebody complained and sued Disney that their ears popped as they were descending these fathoms below in the hydro later. But the hydro later never went more than a fourth of an inch. It just kind of bumped you through it. Um, and uh, but anyway. Then you got in the sea cabs, and the sea cabs were basically a portion. If you if you got on, if if you were to get on Finding Nemo and, and Friends, but you only rode the portion where you see Crush, and then you see the rest of the tank, that's all the sea cab ride was back then. Um, they took one of those theaters. They had two theaters playing back back and forth. Um, the the opening film. They took one of those theaters and made it into a turtle talk with Crush, but they took the other and made it part of the ride, and that lengthened the ride. But the original Sea Cab ride was less than two minutes. I mean, it is like a minute and 40 seconds. It was so short by the time you got off of that thing. Of course, the tank was impressive, but, um, but I, I think it took me working at Disney and being part of that team and working with that team and hosting art groups with at the seas before I came to really appreciate all that is involved with the living seas. Now, on the other, um, what I ha haven't mentioned is the one attraction that really stood out, and that is in Future World, and that is I mean, Spaceship Earth was great, and so was Journey, but Horizons was. So impressive on many levels. The ride vehicle was unique, kind of a kind of a modern uh, Peter Pan flight kind of thing, which suspended you. Very cool to be able to see these depictions of the future on land, in the sea, and in space was really creative. Creative was the concept that you could choose your own ending, whether it was land, sea or, or um, space, the execution of those films, which were expertly, I mean, they were big model cities that they literally filmed. A lot of work went into this. The problem with it is it just was, uh, it, just, it just wasn't well, uh, the screen viewing of this was not impressive and it was kind of a dull image in, in its execution. But notwithstanding, um, and if you can, um, if you can dream it, then you can do it. I mean, the Horizon Song in Space. This was a great attraction, and we tried to get back on it as many times as we could during our time at Epcot. It was just that impressive. World Showcase, which has probably become my favorite part of Epcot. Although I can have my mind changed as we, you know, see some of these newer sections come out. But World Showcase was a riddle to me because while the Norway ride, well, the, you had the Rio del Tiempo ride, but that was kind of a short version that was kind of small world like. It just, it was kind of different. Um, although the inside of the temple was impressive and the, and the ruins and everything, and Plaza de los Amigos, all that was impressive. It, it just felt sh short, shallow. The Norway ride also seemed really short, um, but it was a ride at least. And then there was nothing else in terms of rides in World Showcase, which actually went on for a long while until we got Ratatouille. Um, American Adventure, yeah, absolutely stunning. I got it. It was beautiful. It quickly replaced my love of Lincoln or Hall of Presidents or whatever else 
was patriotic going on. You could appreciate the the quality of the animatronics, the quality and the, the whole way that this whole thing was displayed and and the attention to detail. The And, and of course, um, you had the singers up front before you went in. Um, it was just... It was just an amazing uh, attraction. But other than that, it really was hard to say. Yeah, this is this is just really cool um, world showcase. Unless you were dining, and I don't mean dining like um, I. I, I the dining you had to experience was not the kind you would get at um, Liberty Inn with hot dogs and hamburgers. You had to do formal dining. And we were kind of on a budget there. We were still young, you know, and we hadn't planned for a formal dining. And a dining experience seemed very expensive to us. Like, we figured it might cost us up to $30 to do that dining at that time in 88. And so we kind of, we scratched our head on this because we kept going around it. But, and by the way, back then you had the double-decker buses as well as friendship boats that were operating more frequently and with a greater number. The double-decker buses were a huge hit. Um, and honestly, I'd take the double-decker buses over the little kiosks for, for the food festivals any day. But we broke down, well, two things. The last day, I decided I I don't have a lot of photos, but I took at the time a lot of video. We borrowed my mother-in-law's video camera, which was one part a full like camera that you put on your shoulder, and the other shoulder carried basically a VHS player pack that then with a cord recorded to that player. I got to tell you, this thing was a beast to carry around. And I remember the last full day we were there, I literally went around World Showcase um, filming everything, starting with Canada. I got all the way to China. And by the time I got to the end, I was sunstroke. I was practically sick. I never did film out Mexico. I went back to our room. We decided the last night... And it's so funny. I still have my reservation ticket for it. Can you believe that? Um, but we decided for our very last night, we would go to El Rinal Alfredo de Roma Restaurante. Um, and uh, we dined there. And I think the cheapest thing on the menu was the linguine. And I think that's, uh, or not linguine, the, the Alfredo. Um I think that's what I got on the menu that evening. And um, by the time we were done, by the way, that was when Illuminations, the original Illuminations, or one of the more original Illuminations, not not the one that came out during, uh, in 2000, but the one, and, and they would light up different pavilions, like the Germany pavilion became like this toy land or toy castle. It was so cool. There were a lot of things, and it played original classic music as part of Illuminations. And it was its own unique beast for its time, but it was an impressive show back in its day. Anyway, we went to do dinner, and then we did the fireworks, and by the time we were done, here we are in Italy. We are exhausted. It's our last night at Walt Disney World. We're absolutely beat. My wife is pregnant, and it's, well, it's kind of early. It's November and, and Cameron came out in the, in April the next year. But we are beat. We are tired. And we're just trying to soak it all in. Everybody has left. We're one of the last people to leave. And lo and behold, and this is probably one of the best magical moments I have ever had in my life. But along came this double-decker bus again. Typical because they go around World Showcase. But it was well after. I mean, it was at least 40, 45 minutes after park closing. And along comes this double-decker bus. And he stops in front of us and says, Hey, 
would you like a ride to the front of the park? And we were ecstatic. We got on board. And they didn't take us to the front of World Showcase. No, he took, a, he he made a hard right and went through Future World all the way up to Spaceship Earth. He couldn't go to the front of Spaceship Earth. He wasn't, I don't, I don't think he was allowed to go under the, 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 the arms of Spaceship Earth. But he took us right up to Spaceship Earth. And then from there, we walked it to our bus. I tell you, that was the most perfect timing for the most magical moment ever. And it was, um, it was the perfect ending to our very first stay at Walt Disney World. We had saved up our money. We had waited, anticipated. I left that experience on the plane thinking maybe in 10 years we'll be able to have the money to come back, maybe bring our kids and see it again. Lo and behold, when I got back to Tucson, the job I was on, which was a contractual job, um, I wasn't part of the military, but it was a military contract. It suddenly came to the end. And the announcement I got on the day I got back was, hey, uh, this project's going to end in the next month or two. Sorry about that. You're going to need to find another job. But hey, we are bidding on another project in Florida. If you're open, it's going to be a while before we know if we get it. But we'll fly you out and have you work on another project we have in Little Rock, which is the same aircraft. We should be able to get that project. If we get it, you'll be the first to go to Florida. Well, I didn't have any other job opportunities at the time. And I thought, well, should we do this? This was huge. This was huge leaving because I was from Arizona. My wife was from Utah. We took the risk and moved to Little Rock, which is officially in my mind, halfway between nowhere. It's halfway between Disneyland and Walt Disney World, as far from either parks you get to in the middle of the country. And lo and behold, what was worse? they didn't get the project in Florida. So I ended up doing this little detour down in Dallas. And about two years after that, the people who did get the contract eventually in Florida ended up hiring me and moving us out. And, by, and on my 30th birthday, we moved, that week of my 30th birthday, we moved to the Panhandle of Florida. We were there a couple of years, and then a couple of years later, we were in Orlando. So little did I realize when I got on the plane to leave Walt Disney World that within about five years, we would be living back in Orlando, where we have been 30 years since. It's been a great ride. And I am so grateful for that first experience. Absolutely the Caribbean beach prepared me for Floridian living. I could envision it in my mind. It has lived up to its potential. And, um, and so has the blessing of being here in the backyard of Walt Disney World. But it began with a journey 35 years. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I know it's the oldest <laughs> Walt Disney World uh trip review ever made um for sure but um trip report is this is a little long in coming but i hope you've enjoyed it um just a reminder so grateful for those of you who have gone out to get a copy of a century of powerful disney insights it has been just wonderful to see the response this is the perfect um this is the perfect stocking stuffer this is the perfect Christmas gift and I would suggest go out and we have a link on both the show notes and at Disney Insights to go out and purchase the book on Amazon. It chronicles in volume one the first 50 of the 100 years of the Walt Disney Company and uh, I just encourage you to check it out and also check out Performance Journeys where we highlight the things that I do which involve keynote speaking, consulting, and providing support to people wanting to improve their leadership, their customer service, their teams. Those are the things I get in the trench and do with companies, 
bringing best in business ideas from not only Disney, but other world-class organizations. It's a lot of fun. As you plan your training experience for the next year, maybe you've got a conference coming up, whatever it may be, feel free to reach out because I'm, we'll, I'd just be happy to help you, support you with whatever needs you have moving into 2024. Well, this does it for this uh, Disney Insights podcast. Again, thanks for being part. And in the words of Sinbad's storybook voyage, always follow the compass of your heart. Have a great day. Have a happy holiday period. We'll see you real soon. <laughs>